Laura Kelm has developed a keen eye for indications that a stream is distressed, a deeply incised and eroded stream bed disconnected from the surrounding floodplain, invasive plant species, and sparse wildlife. She's just as familiar with what it takes to repair that damaged landscape. A detailed plan, permitting at the local, state, and federal level, stakeholder buy-in, and countless hours of the kind of work that requires muck boots and a hard hat. And perhaps most importantly, she's well acquainted with the deep feeling of satisfaction that comes from seeing signs that a stream system is restored. A great blue heron fishing in a Washington, D.C. suburb. Habitat expansion for a threatened turtle species. A flourishing wetland. As project manager for GreenVest, an environmental development and consulting firm specializing in restoration and mitigation projects in the Mid-Atlantic region, Kelm is deeply involved in several stream and wetland restoration projects in both rural and urban areas. Following a success story posted on our website, we invited her to join us for an in-depth conversation about some of her recent projects, the essential elements of a successful stream restoration endeavor, and her views on what the future holds for the industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Aquapod, where guests share water monitoring stories from the field. I'm Helen Taylor, content manager at In-Situ. And I'm Adam Hobson, application development manager. And our guest today is Laura Kelm. Laura is project manager with GreenVest, a company based in Bowie, Maryland, that specializes in restoration and mitigation projects. The company is also the owner and developer of multiple mitigation banks and offers mitigation credits for environmental impacts in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States. Laura, welcome to Aquapod. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. After talking with you recently for a success story on one of your stream restoration projects, we were excited to get you on the program to discuss your work more broadly. Not only because you're out in the field working on some interesting sites, but you know also because GreenVest has a really intriguing business model that seems like it's facilitating some important restoration work that might not otherwise happen, perhaps. So... I wonder if maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit about GreenVest, uh, the kind of work you do, and where you do it. Sure. GreenVest is a for-profit, land-based ecological restoration company. We develop nature-based solutions for our clients that provide compensatory mitigation, habitat, and water quality improvements by building resilient ecosystems and communities. Most of our projects are based in New Jersey and Maryland, but we also have projects and are currently exploring projects throughout the mid-Atlantic region. Um, What we do is we help our clients and communities solve compliance requirements and address vulnerabilities by managing water quality, water volume, and restoring sustainable ecological functions to those resources. Great. so, like I said, you know, we were we were pleased when you reached out to us a few months back to suggest that we uh, write a success story around a specific project, the one the Bacon Ridge Branch Stream uh, project in Maryland. Uh, that's a story that's currently on our website for anyone who's interested in checking it out. But I wonder if here you could uh, tell us a little bit about that project and what you were hoping to accomplish. Sure, that stream restoration. Um, took 17,000 linear feet of stream, much of which was very incised. So the stream channel was anywhere from four foot to 10 feet deep. And we installed um, log jams. So um, an engineered beaver dam analog, so something like a beaver dam to increase the water surface elevation because you had this very low volume of water at the bottom of this big cavernous stream valley. So the water was never accessing the floodplain. So we installed these log jam structures to elevate our water surface elevation, increase overbank flooding and provide hydrology to the floodplain, um, provide deep pools in the stream and really increase in-stream habitat. So there were a lot of different um, aspects of that project that we were trying to accomplish. That's great. How, what, was the, what was the driver for the project itself? Why were you, why were you looking to, to bring, you know, kind of basically, basically increase flooding on the stream? So the, the ultimate goal of the project was to provide our client with um, sediment and nutrient reductions um, in the state. So by arresting the stream bank erosion that was ongoing in the project area, we're able to stem that flow of sediment and nutrients going into the Chesapeake Bay. So that was the main driver, but because the stream channel was so incised, we could tell that there had previously been wetlands on the floodplain 
those were no longer there because they were not getting the hydrology that they needed to be functioning as wetlands. Um, so we were also looking to restore those wetlands, restore in-stream habitat. Um, so there were um, there were a lot of different aspects to the project that we were we were looking to accomplish. What were you doing for for monitoring to know if your if your program was actually working? I guess I assume there was some you know obviously there's visual uh, impact of, of flooding you can you can sense that. But what else were you doing to to kind of monitor what was going on? So there's there's two different aspects to the project. So the required monitoring that we have for the project is looking at what's going on in the stream to verify that the stream um, restoration project is functioning as it was designed to function. So we're doing things like um, surveying cross sections to measure the bank height ratio and make sure that we are getting frequent out of bank flooding events. Um, basically saying that our stream banks are not too tall to allow for um, for flooding to only occur at infrequent flooding events. Um, so there, there's monitoring like that, visually assessing all of our structures, making sure that they are functioning correctly, um, not blown out or having any sort of structural issues that require maintenance. Um, then there's also the uh, portion of the project that was increasing wetland hydrology. That was sort of, it was a goal of the project, but there was no monitoring associated with that because we weren't trying to get any wetland credits out of that. We just thought that what we were doing for the project would also benefit the wetlands. So for those, we set up transects across um, three different transects in the project area, going from the stream across the floodplain to the valley wall. And we had groundwater monitoring wells set up periodically um, from the stream bank. So 50 foot, 100 foot, 200 foot, and 300 foot away from the stream bank, all the way out to the valley wall to see how the groundwater level was responding within those wetlands. Um, before the project, groundwater was several feet below the ground surface. Um, after construction of the Beaver Dam analogs near those transects, the groundwater levels really increased by two to three feet. So that was our, our monitoring there. And then in conjunction with each transect, we also had a logger in the stream so that we could correlate increases in groundwater with increases in stream water level. So Laura, you had you were doing some some interesting monitoring there, kind of looking at uh, surface water groundwater interaction there, and you saw that the groundwater level was was rising. Did you see any changes there where this where the stream may have changed its hydrologic function, maybe going from a gaining stream to a losing stream, or any any seasonality? So in general, we know that the surface water groundwater interactions are seasonal. Um, previously, it was it was definitely. Um, the stream was pulling groundwater out. So some um, some data that was collected um, pre-construction during the design phase of the project showed that basically the, the groundwater level was lowest close to the stream and actually increased the further you went out from the stream, showing that the stream being so incised was actually pulling groundwater out. I don't know that it's so easy to describe either a gaining or losing system at this point. Um, it's definitely... Um, a little bit more nuanced of an interaction Great. because of those log jams, the water surface elevation in the stream generally stays where it's at. So it stays pretty darn high, you know, within a few inches of the, of the top of the stream bank. Um, but seasonally, we know that we're getting more water into the system in the spring um, with uh, extra rainfall and snow melt um, and whatnot. And then throughout the summer, we would be losing that water. So at that point, the groundwater is feeding the stream. So it sort of depends on the the seasonality, um, what the relationship is that we're seeing. No, that, that's, that's it's always interesting to see that because my sense is that you you wouldn't have been able to see that had you not been having having continuous monitoring in place, um, kind of measuring yeah. all the time. Uh, yeah, correct. I'm curious about the the Beaver Dam analog technique, mm -hmm. and I don't know if it's just because. Um, of some of the stories we've been and, and customer conversations that we've been having that this has been coming up more and more, or if this is a newer technique, um, seems to make total sense to emulate nature and, and to, to restore ecosystems. But can you tell me a little bit about this technique and related to your work? Is this something that you typically do or is it, is it newer for you? Yeah, so th this technique is actually, it's it's new for GreenVest, but it's also pretty new on the East Coast. Um, it's been around on the West Coast for longer, um, but it's really just now coming coming East. This is one of the first of these types of projects in the region to have these sort of structures. So we're essentially in the floodplain creating all of these 
stage zero channels. So these very tiny little headwater channels, every time that um, we get an overbank flow, you have these really small channels forming in the floodplain. So that's really cool, but this is definitely a, a new technique. How are you going to share that out into the scientific community? That's a great question. Uh, we've been trying to do a lot of PR on it. Uh, we've done a lot of site visits, things like that. Uh, the regulators have all been um, pretty excited to see it and have actually been asking to um, come to the site more and bring their colleagues to show them what what's possible um, and what the site looks like after the fact. So we're really just trying to, to spread the word and um, answer questions and do site tours for anybody who seems interested because we think this is really um, where stream restoration is going in the future when you have this sort of a, um, a wide floodplain and you're able to do this. Obviously, if you have development right up next to the stream, this technique is not going to work. But sure. in situations right. where it could work, it's it definitely seems to have a lot of benefits. Are you still monitoring in the stream and um, the groundwater at this location? Yes. Yeah. So we're in our second year of monitoring. Um, so it's been about two years since the project completed construction. We have a five-year maintenance and monitoring period. I think at this point, our plan is to keep the loggers in the ground for at least in the, another year or two, just to make sure that what we've been seeing so far um, are actually patterns and not just from, you know, freak storm events and things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Laura, coming back to the um, the Beaver Dam analog, what what goes into the design of a of a project like that? Like, how I guess how are you deciding where to put these 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 basically these barriers these these flow restrictors, if you will, in the stream? Is that is that is that the magic, or I guess how, what kind of things are you considering? So we did have um, a project designer for this project. So um, Biohabitats was the project designer. So they were the ones who did all the, the different engineering work and all the calculations. In general, these um, these structures were placed um, every half a foot of elevation fall. So wherever the bed dropped about a half a foot in elevation, they put a new one, um, which is why in one of our main streams, we have about 40 of these structures. And on the other one, we only need about 20 for twice the length just based on the slopes, wow, okay. um, the first one being a much steeper channel, right? Um, but during construction, um, we worked with the with the contractor to actually move the locations of these a little bit because sometimes they would get to a site and say, you know, this is placed in the middle of what's a really wide pool, but just downstream 10 foot, the stream channel narrows up a lot. So it would use less wood and be easier to construct. So we said, okay, well, let's shift it a little bit. Um, and we would also shift the structures to try and avoid impacts to any, you know, big trees that were right next to the bank where we were able to. Okay. So there's a little bit of flexibility that way as well. No, that's good. But but primarily it sounds like based really on the slope of of the of the channel. Uh, that, that's yeah. one of the main drivers there. And then I assume just looking yeah. at, I guess, is, uh, in, in a project like this, is there's obviously some hydrologic characterization that has to take place prior to understand what flows may be, right? Forecasting flows yes. as well. What, what's that process yeah, like? So again, this was this was done by the the designer. Mm -hmm. um, so they they did um, two dimensional um, HECRAS modeling on the project okay. to be able to look at the existing conditions before the design, and then what the proposed conditions would be with the design, and tweak the design to make sure that the design wasn't going to cause any significant increases in any um, shears or velocities either in the stream or on the floodplain. Okay. So we wanted to make sure that we knew what we were, what we were getting once the project would be completed. Mm -hmm. Now, was there any, uh, so you mentioned, you know, using HECRAS, very common modeling mm -hmm. tool for, for this type of thing. Was there any kind of modeling or forecasting done for kind of what the, what the impacts would be for, for groundwater infiltration? Or, you know, infiltration to groundwater? I don't believe there was. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't believe there was. Great. So that was kind of, so the, oh, I, the, the groundwater side was a bit of a bonus. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We have um, several, several of our wetlands experts on staff um, had a hunch of what was going to happen, but nobody knew for sure, which is again, why we placed those loggers all the way out to, um, to the Valley wall, because we just weren't sure. We, we figured we'd see impacts close to the stream that the groundwater would increase in conjunction with the stream water level increasing. We just weren't sure how far, out those impacts would be felt and also how great the increase would actually be. So that's where the loggers came in. Nice. Um, and the other thing with the loggers is that placing them on this project now allows us to take this information and forecast what's going to happen on future projects. We have some projects in the design phase that are using similar restoration techniques. And now that we've done this project and collected the data, we can say, okay, well, 
now we can look at the data we've collected from this site and this other site is similar and the restoration techniques proposed are similar. So therefore, we think that we're going to have this similar sort of outcome. That's great. It's nice to be able to have that more, uh, you kind of know what you, what you might get. <laughs> Idea. Yeah, exactly. What were um, on this project? What were some unique challenges you faced? Was it was it pretty straightforward once you kind of had the design put forward and all that, or were there other? Did you guys kind of come across anything unique? Um, we did have to get some buy-in from from the landowners. The mm. primary landowner was on board from the beginning, but we did have um, a downstream landowner um, that was not. They, they had some concerns that um, that they wanted us to address. So um, we were able to work with them. We did an information session um, and tried to educate them as best as possible about the benefits of the project. Um, so eventually they they did get on board um, and we were able to um, to construct the project. Um, this was also a, a new a new technique that we were using. So there was definitely um, a bit of guiding the regulators um, who are going to be issuing us our permits mm. to make sure that they knew what the expectations were for the project, that we weren't going to be coming in and clear cutting the forest, for example, <laughs> right. um, to create these structures. So, yeah. Um, and there was actually a smaller project using similar techniques completed by the same engineer um, just a few miles away. So we were actually able to take regulators for this project out on site to that project and show them what the finished product might look like. So they were able to to see on a smaller scale what we were going for, and that that was very helpful. And is there an added degree of pressure when there are these mitigation credits involved? Um, how does that play in? So this project was actually a restoration project, not mitigation project. Um, and I should maybe explain the difference. Between yeah, that would them. be great. Okay, so it's really a matter of the the regulatory requirements for each. So a mitigation project is being completed because um, an aquatic resource is going to be impacted. So if somebody is going to be expanding a road, expanding a military base, for example, things like that, and they know that they, they're going to be causing impacts to a stream or a wetland, they're going to need mitigation credits to mitigate for those impacts. So they'll need to do some sort of restoration work or wetland creation work, things like that, somewhere else to offset the impacts that they're causing. So this project was actually done, um, as I mentioned, to stem the sediment and nutrients going into the Chesapeake Bay as part of the requirements um, to meet the goals of the Chesapeake Bay TMDL, the total maximum daily load, which is like the pollution diet for the Chesapeake Bay. So that TMDL document breaks up all the required reductions in nutrients and sediments among different players throughout the watershed and says, okay, you need to reduce by this percentage and you need to reduce by this percentage. So this project was helping our client reduce by a certain percentage. So di different regulatory requirements, mm -hmm. same, mm -hmm. same type of an outcome. Okay. Good to clarify. And a bonus, I understand from our previous conversation about this is that uh, I don't know whether it was a compliment or criticism, but two beavers moved into the. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because we kind of wish that they had come in ahead of time. They would have saved us. Right. Before. You, your client um, would have been happier, right? <laughs> yeah. We, we've seen, we've seen beavers established in two different, two different areas. Um, the bigger of the two beaver dams at this point is actually no longer active. Um, it got blown out in a storm and I, I came by shortly after, you know, a few weeks later and I thought I saw beaver footprints all over the place. Like they were going to rebuild it. And then the last time I was there, there weren't any footprints and it still wasn't in great shape. So they moved on come back or they may have just totally moved on. But yeah, I mean, it, that is, that is pretty cool to see for sure. So, you know, we're doing something right. So Laura, where else are you doing this kind of work? Well, we have um, one project that's the Muddy Creek Stream Restoration Project that's up in uh, the northern uh, northern Maryland, close to the Pennsylvania border. Um, that's a stream restoration project that was also completed about two years ago, restoring about 8,000 linear feet of stream. Um, cool thing about that project is that the area where that project took place is home to a rare turtle species, as well as streams that are known habitat for brook trout. Um, which are listed as a species of greatest conservation need in Maryland. And so what was what was involved with this project? So this was a totally different restoration technique. So 
Um, in stream, in general, in the, the streams that were known to have uh, brook trout, we really focused on increasing um, in-stream habitat that's available, as well as reducing our stream bank erosion. We also had a lot of bank erosion on those streams. Um, and if you're a fish swimming around and all of a sudden, every time it rains, the water's totally cloudy, you can't see where you're going, then the sediment drops out on your spawning habitat, you're not a happy camper. So there was, again, a, a lot of different goals to this project that were some were similar and some were different to the Bacon Ridge Branch project. Um, as far as the turtle species goes, um, that was a, a pretty neat find. So we were working to um, increase the habitat and, and really um, preserve the habitat that was existing for, for that species. So um, we did some things like stabilizing head cuts and really small channels. Um, the largest area of habitat that we found was actually in the middle of uh, active cattle pasture. So for that one, we were able to facilitate conversations between the state and the landowners to come up with a grazing management plan so that the cattle could graze on the pastures only at select times when it would be most beneficial or least detrimental to the turtles. Um, the benefits of the cattle grazing are that it makes sure that that pasture area stays as herbaceous only. So no woody species are mm. going to grow because anytime a sapling starts to grow, the cattle are going to munch it down, mm. but it also keeps the cattle out of there at important life stage events for the turtle species. That was a pretty cool partnership. That sounds like a good deal. Very interesting. What kind of monitoring were you having to do on a project like that? Yeah. So um, a lot of the, um, I, I should actually mention that there was one other restoration air technique that we did. So mm. again, where the, where the turtles were, there was one very small stream that ran through the middle of the pasture and it really had not much going on. It was essentially a little ditch going through a pasture. So we were able to move that stream over, meander it, add riffles and pools. So again, adding some nice in-stream habitat. Mm. We also added at the upstream end of that, we added some wattles, which are essentially um, bundles of live branches. Um, oh. So we added those into the flow path with the goal of breaking up the energy from the from high storm events so that high storm events didn't like rip through and cause a deep incised channel to form in that area. So the monitoring for that area, that smaller channel is a little bit different than the monitoring for the larger streams mm. on site that have the brook trout in it. So, so oh, yeah, I was going to say, what, what kind of, actually, what kind of monitoring were you doing? Was it mostly, I guess, were you looking at just, uh, again, kind of, was it flows, level, quality? Yeah. So the area where we had the wattles installed, we actually had a request from regulators. They were concerned that because this stream is the tributary to um, trout streams, they were concerned that the wattles would cause water to back up. And therefore in the pools, the water temperature would really increase, especially before any vegetation we planted matured enough to shade the stream. Mm. So they asked that we perform some temperature monitoring. So we actually installed loggers um, immediately upstream of a wattle to capture like the maximum ponded area, as well as far enough upstream to be out of the area of influence, just to see if there was a water temperature difference that's caused by those wattles. Um, the regulators said they didn't have much data on it. They're seeing more of that sort of restoration techni technique being proposed. So they were really looking for data just to figure out if it was a good thing, if it was a bad thing, if it just didn't necessarily have any sort of impact on water temperature. So um, we have those um, water temperature loggers in place okay. to monitor that during the summer. Um, and then during the rest of, in the rest of the site, we're doing um, some similar monitoring techniques to the Bacon Ridge Branch Project. So we're doing a structure stability assessment, looking at everything, making sure it's all functioning as designed. We're doing some cross-section surveys, um, looking at bank height ratios in some areas. Um, we're looking at our pool spacing ratio to make sure that our pools are appropriately spaced, not uh, moving too close together, moving further apart. So basically our stream is staying in place generally as it was designed to or within a sustainable um, metric for that type of stream. And now this project is, you said this is, this project is complete now? Yes. Okay. Yep. We're in our second year of monitoring post-construction. So what did you find out with the temperature monitoring? Were the, were the wattles causing any problems? Uh, well, I haven't had a chance to analyze this summer's data yet. Uh, last summer's data, it was pretty much the same temperature upstream and at the wattle. Um, okay. The amount of water that was behind the wattle when I was there was like, just, <laughs> so it's not, right. it's not really significant. Um, so we haven't seen a difference yet, but um, we'll see what this year's data shows and we'll we'll keep looking at that and see if there's a difference between year one and year five, for example. And what will indicate success? 
continuing to have reduced or no bank erosion mm-hmm. um, for sure. I don't I don't know that you can ever really say you're going to have no bank erosion, but continuing to have um, significantly reduced bank erosion for sure um, is success. Um, continuing to have good in-stream habitat. That's something else that we're doing for monitoring. We're completing um, habitat assessments um, throughout. So just to make, make sure that we continue to have um, good in-stream habitat, good riparian zones. That's great. great. So yeah. Laura, it sounds like something you know, like these two projects as a, an example are certainly, you know, we're talking about cattle pastures and sounds like, I guess, you know, with the Bacon Ridge uh, project that that's uh, a little more, I think my sense is a little more open areas. Are, are you dealing with anything that that's, that's kind of, you know, maybe more urban developed type areas? Yeah, we actually recently completed the Tinkers Creek Stream Restoration Project, um, and that's definitely in a more urban suburban area. It's in a, a suburb of Washington, D.C., but um, in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was definitely, that. that's a project where we have um, the stream running through about 40 different properties that are both wow. privately and publicly owned. So that's a big difference considering the Bacon Ridge Branch Project dealt with three landowners. The Muddy Creek Project dealt with one landowner on one very large piece of land. So this is, it's definitely a different, a different environment, a bit different restoration techniques, um, as well as, yeah, just different techniques to implement in general. Just in general, who you're having to, to engage with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We have to do public meetings. Yeah. More outreach frequently when a project is under construction, when a project of that magnitude and with that many landowners is under construction, people are coming out. We literally had people sitting in card tables in their backyard watching the stream construction (laughs) project. So um, when we're out there performing oversight, you know, we want to make sure to um, to be the positive face of the project and make sure that everybody is happy with the project. Mm-hmm. And if they have any questions that we can answer their questions. So, yeah. So I guess when there is, when there is conflict amongst the the stakeholders or in this case, just property owners with how do you, yeah. how do you guys, how do you manage those, those competing interests there? <laughs> <laughs> um, thankfully that is not, part of what I personally handle. I, you know, I do what I, I do what I can do. And then at some point you have to say, let me get you in touch with my manager. Um, <laughs> but um, in general, we do, we try and talk to people. Um, so anywhere where we're on somebody's private property, we have an agreement with them in place before the project goes to construction. So it's not brand new that all of a sudden we're in somebody's backyard. So yeah. Just to kind of as a point of clarification, how what's the size of these streams that you're mostly dealing with in terms of like how, you know uh, stream channel width or something like that? So the Bacon Ridge Branch uh, stream width is maybe seven to ten feet. Um, the Tinker's Creek project is um, I think about probably about fifteen to twenty feet okay. wide. Um, Muddy Creek, the streams ranged from um, that small stream is like five feet wide mm. to some of the the biggest stream is um, probably like thirty to forty feet wide. Okay. So that one's pretty sizable. Yeah, good, good, good yeah. size, good size streams. I think that's a always a good yeah. idea to kind of put put that in perspective. Like, what are we talking about here? Are these little trickles yeah. or are these actual, you know, real, yeah. you know, real, real rivers? <laughs> and, yeah. And, Though you know. It, it also does vary. So the Tinker's Creek project, um, it's, it is a very large scale restoration project. It's actually one of the, the largest projects, one of the largest stream restoration projects that's been completed in Maryland um, at about 40,000 linear feet, which is over seven and a half miles of stream restoration. And wow. a good chunk of that is actually in small channels in the floodplain. So mm. those channels are quite small. So maybe one foot to, you know, three or four feet wide. Um, but the main channels, the main perennial streams are, yeah, probably that 15 to 20 foot wide. Okay. So right. even within a project, it can it can really vary quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So coming back a little bit to, uh, you'd mentioned earlier, the concept of um, TMDLs, total maximum daily loads. Um, and it sounds like many of these projects are somewhat related to that concept. Can can you kind of explain a little bit what that what that is? Sure. The total maximum daily load is... Um, it's a very intensive study that had been done on the Chesapeake Bay watershed to quantify the amount of nutrients, so nitrogen and phosphorus, as well as sediment that was going into the Chesapeake Bay. So a TMDL can focus on different pollutants depending on what the issues are in a particular watershed. So in the Chesapeake Bay, it was nutrients and sediment. So there was really intensive studying that was done to determine how much 
nitrogen, how much phosphorus, how much sediment was going into the Chesapeake Bay, and then quantify the maximum amount that could go into the Chesapeake Bay while still allowing the water body to meet its water quality standards that are set by the EPA. So the TMDL ultimately, um, it's called the pollution diet because mm -hmm. it ultimately says, okay, this is how much you have going in. This is the maximum that can be go that can be going in while allowing it to meet water quality standards. Therefore, you need to reduce your nutrients and your sediment by X amount. Mm -hmm. And then it breaks up that and X amount into varying sectors of who needs to reduce what by how much. Right. I, I like that concept. I guess I, I, I have never heard that, the idea of the, um, the pollution diet. That's mm -hmm. a great way to think of it. Um, as you know, TMDLs are they're all over the United States um, and in yeah. other other parts of the world as well. But that idea of that's how much you can still uh, you you can put in, but still but to still meet your requirements. So so basic yeah. question: How does the data you're collecting tie to that measurement that marker? So the proposed conditions when we were back in the in the permitting and the design phase of the project, the proposed condition said we're able to quantify what the pre-construction condition was of the channel. So quantify the amount of stream bank erosion, for example, that's causing the nutrient and the sediment pollution to go into the bay. So once we have that quantified, and then the proposed condition, we're able to quantify, again, what our existing erosion and sediment, or excuse me, our existing erosion rate is, which is minimal at this point. So we're able to show that we have reduced the erosion rates to reduce the amount of nutrient and sediments by X amount based on what was there before the project started and then the minimal amount theoretically going in now. So we do quantify the amount of bank erosion um, periodically as part of our monitoring requirements. So for all of these projects that's required during year three and year five post-construction that we quantify the amount of bank erosion. So if there is any bank erosion, we'll have to quantify and then we'll be able to tell again and compare it with the pre-construction so that we can show how much it's actually been reduced by. Does that answer the Great question? Great explanation. No, Thank you. Okay. <laughs> That's helpful. Good. Now, Laura, you had also mentioned the idea of uh, the, the idea of permitting in, involved uh, around many of these projects. Um, what kind of permits are you, are you needed to get? I mean, obviously you can't just come in and start doing these types of projects. So what 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 uh, what, do you, what do you need to do to start start a project like this? So there's actually quite a bit of permitting required. There's permitting required at the local level, so um, at the county level in Maryland. Um, so we need to get our uh, grading permit through the county. So the ability to actually move any earth above a certain amount, um, we have to get through the county. Um, we usually have to get variances. So for the ability to actually perform construction work in a stream corridor, perform construction work in a wetland, mm -hmm. um, perform construction work in a forest. Uh, the exact variances really depend on the county and what exactly is on site before we even start. Um, then we need to get state permits from the Maryland Department of the Environment, and we also need to get federal permits from the U.S. Army Corps. <laughs> so there's there's quite a long permitting process. It's, it's, a, it's a lot that goes that. And, and to understand that, yeah. I guess, you know, that a lot of those, the, 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 the intent there, again, there's, you really can't be constructing in a stream um, for, yeah. for many of the reasons that I think you, you've already brought up is the idea that if you go and just build something in a stream, you can um, increase the sediment load and change the channels and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and I think my understanding is then the, the, the permitting process is in place to make sure there's some control on that. Yeah, exactly. So the, the, the permitting process is required so that nobody can come and put up a strip mall right next to a stream, for example, right. or, you know, make a housing development in the middle of a wetland. So that's why they're there in the first place. They're, um, they're there for, for good reason. Um, from my personal perspective, it's it creates a lot of hurdles to make mm -hmm. stream restoration more difficult and a bit more onerous. Um, I understand the intent but I wish that uh, things were a little bit more efficient for those of us who are trying to do this for, yeah. for good reason. Yeah, right. you're there to try to help, but you have to go through the same hoops, jump through the same hoops right. as those who are, uh, yeah, who, right. whose impact yeah, exactly. would be different. So some of our clients are being required to do these, these types of projects in terms of uh, mitigation projects where mm -hmm. they're required to mitigate for any impacts to natural resources. Um, but other things like... Um, projects that are for TMDL purposes, 
our clients have um, different options for how they want to reduce their nutrient and their sediment mm. inputs. Stream restoration is one of those options that they can use. So it, it's sort of their choice to do stream restoration um, versus doing other things or in conjunction with other techniques. So GreenVest, um, as an organization that, I, you know, for some time now, as I understand it, has offered... Um, these mitigation credits and, and um, actually owns these mitigation banks. What is their, what is your role in, in getting these projects off the ground? Greenvest works with generally with private landowners to um, conduct the restoration work. So sometimes a landowner will come to us or we will find a landowner by doing, um, doing a bit of, of searching or we see a stream that's in bad shape, for example, and then we might do some research to figure out, who owns the property and approach the property owner. So we'll have these projects sort of in our back pocket. And then it's a matter of finding a client who actually needs restoration in that given geographic area. And then we'll work with an engineer and with the landowner to develop the project on that property for the benefit of the client. So it is an interesting position. A lot of, um, Traditional environmental consulting companies um, in Maryland, for example, are working for counties and the counties want to do restoration on their county owned property. So that's great that they're able to do that. But so much of the land in the state is not necessarily owned by counties or other public entities to be able to have that option. So we're able to leverage the privately owned land in order to get that restoration completed. Well, that makes sense. Is GreenVest model unique or unusual or have you, do you know of other organizations that work similarly? I think we're pretty unique um, in terms of private properties being what we're really going for. Um, I think that other companies are starting to move in that direction. Um, but I think we, we've been doing that as our business model for years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk to you a little bit about your experience because stream restoration is your specialty is my understanding. Is that, is that correct? Is a a particular area of focus for you? Let's, let's take a minute and and, and tell us a little bit about your story, how you got into it and um, you know, why it was, why it was appealing to you. Sure. Um, I have taken sort of a, an interesting route to get to stream restoration. Um, My background is in environmental management, specifically coastal environmental management. Um, And I have also been um, interested in and involved in environmental education. So when I finished grad school, um, I worked as an environmental educator for a science museum for a few years. So totally different. Um, And then I ended up finding, um, I, I moved from that to working for a small watershed association um, a nonprofit organization, and I was doing their water quality work. So I was looking at water chemistry in their streams. I was doing macroinvertebrate assessments, so the little aquatic insects that live in streams. Um, I was doing habitat assessments. So those were my main focus. And then when I came to Maryland, everybody was doing stream restoration. There wasn't as much water quality work, so I got into the stream restoration. Field. Okay. So um, a previous supervisor called it um, a different chapter in the same book. So a good way to see it, I think. Did it feel that way to you? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Parts of it are related for sure. Um, Parts of it are different. (laughs) So there there was definitely, you know, more challenges to learn um, a new industry, but um, some of the language is the same. A lot of the goals are the same. Well, critical work too, when you consider development and climate and, and, and every, it's never been more important is my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So Laura, where do you where do you feel that uh, stream restoration is going? What's the next step? Where where's the future of it? So I actually am seeing differences in restoration techniques from projects that were constructed, you know, five ten years ago to projects constructed now. Um, so some of the the techniques that are different are moving from a lot of rock based structures to using a lot more wood and more natural materials. So. Um, projects like Bacon Ridge Branch Stream mm-hmm. Restoration Project are really, I think, um, sort of trending and you know moving in the right direction towards um, creation of more natural systems. But also, not just a focus on the stream corridor. 
and only the stream corridor, but really more of an ecosystem-based approach where you're you're focused more on the whole area, not just what's going on in the stream, but what's going mm. on in the floodplain, what's going on in the canopy and the surrounding um, riparian buffer area. So it seems like there's a, there's a lot of rapid change happening with these with the kind of the, the tools and the techniques that may be going on. Is that something that's unique with stream restoration that there is kind of a um, a uh, uh, rapid cycle where you can try different things. It seems like, you know, said over the past several years that things are evolving. Um, is that just due to the nature of stream restoration and kind of that you can have a, a quick return on uh, to know whether things are successful? That's a great question. Um, I, I do feel like the permitting aspect um, slows some of that progress down and maybe that's not the worst thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so most projects we'll have a minimum of a five-year um, monitoring period post-construction. Okay. Um, but then for the client to continue to receive uh, credit beyond that, they need to continue with the monitoring after the fact to show that the site is continuing to meet whatever the project goals are. So, you know, reduce erosion, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think stream restoration projects are trying to move move in a different direction, like move to be more natural, but mm-hmm. the, the change is slow um, because it does take time to convince regulators to permit the types of projects that we're looking for. And then they might want us to collect data just like we're doing with the waddles at the Muddy Creek stream restoration mm-hmm. project so that the more they see it, they'll have some data to be able to make informed decisions about whether that type of monitoring um is in line with what they would like to see from a restoration project or whether it is counter to what they would like to see. Um, There's also uh, the impacts of climate change, I think are also um, influencing some of the the restoration design, um, just in terms of being prepared for um, increased frequency of these high intensity storm events. So you need your channels to be able to handle that increased flow um, but at the same time, you don't want to overbuild your channel so that during base flow, you just have like an inch of rain running through really big riprap. <laughs> right. So I think, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of interesting things that are happening at this time and, and people are really trying to, I, I think that those in the industry are really trying to figure out what the best path forward is to meet the environmental needs, um, while also meeting the regulatory requirements and also doing right by the environment. Right, right. So circling back to monitoring, um, I guess what 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 kind of changes are you seeing in the like, like different trends or or or, or monitoring needs um, for these types of projects, and and ultimately what what, what do you think you we, you know you need? Yeah, um, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of the monitoring requirements on permits are not really keeping up with the different types of projects. So this is um, something that. Um, Greenvest, I think, does pretty well as we try and get ahead of things. And we propose monitoring standards for our projects based on what the project goals are so that we can ensure that we are going to be monitoring based on what we say we're going to be doing. There's no sense in monitoring something that we're not trying to change or improve at all. So why spend the time doing that? So we've had pretty good success in writing our monitoring standards. And then obviously, if regulators would like to see something different, we'll have a conversation with them um, and adjust our monitoring requirements as needed. Um, So I I think that's important. And it seems that the monitoring community is going that way to try and be more specific rather than just everybody across the board doing the same type of monitoring to require monitoring that is really reflective of each individual project. Mm -hmm. One of the the things that I think um, I need to learn a bit more about, but I also see see this going in this direction is in terms of quantifying erosion, Hmm. I think using new technology, like um, using drones to be able to digitally create um, digital elevation models. So essentially Mm -hmm. topographic landscapes, and then create that over multiple years of pre-construction, year one of monitoring, year five of monitoring to really be able to quantify the changes in bank erosion, for example. I, I think that's really where things are going in the future because there's so much talk about how do you quantify the amount of erosion. So if we're doing a lot of these projects to, at least in in the Chesapeake Bay region, to reduce sediment and nutrients going into the Chesapeake Bay, how do you really best quantify how much sediment is going into the bay and how much 
sediment you're preventing from going into the bay. So I, th I think that's a great, um, I think that's someplace where, where monitoring is going in the future, at least for that metric. And it sounds like with your projects that you're spending a lot of time in the field, you're going out to the field and collecting your data. Do you see um, with these projects um, a potential benefit or use for remote, more remote monitoring technologies? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it, I think it depends on what exactly the data is. But um, for example, I was supposed to be in the field yesterday doing monitoring, but we had a big storm event come through the night before. So we were pretty sure that the stream flow was too high for us to be able to safely enter the stream and survey yesterday. Today, we weren't sure, but it wasn't really worth, you know, a long drive to the site to have to turn around and say, oh, we can't go in today. So we called off monitoring for today as well. So, I, you know, I think that even for the most basic need of just seeing how storms are impacting our sites. Um, yeah, I think there's there's definitely a, a need a need for that. And I think um, I think that we're going to start using that um, or the industry is going to start using using those sort of tools more in the future. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I'm also curious, you know, do you do you feel that people doing this work are are essentially doing it in isolation or is there communication amongst the researchers and scientists that are out doing this particular type of restoration work? Do you feel connected so, to your peers and colleagues in a, in a useful way? <laughs> in Maryland, there's actually um, pretty good community for this. There's the Maryland Water Monitoring Council, um, which is its own um, organization. And they put on an annual conference to um, get folks together for water monitoring and generally within the Maryland Water Monitoring Council, there's lots of sessions that focus on stream restoration. So I find that very useful. Um, so there, there's various um, conferences, you know, there's a there's regional conferences uh, that focus on stream restoration. Um, there's also the Maryland Stream Restoration Association, um, which is a local professional association that um, has webinars and field trips to different restoration sites. So um, those are really great tools to be able to uh, network with and learn from peers who are in the industry and maybe doing the same job, but with different companies or maybe doing um, different aspects of stream mm -hmm. restoration. So I find those very valuable. Yeah. And, right. and what about your connection with other women scientists? Is that available? Is it a thing? Is it important to you? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I, I find that there's actually a, a good number of women who are in the environmental field. Um, it almost depends on which company, though. So some companies, it's it's mostly women doing stream restoration, and other companies, it's it's there's very few women. Um, it it really depends. Um, so I, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. There's not there's not um, like great professional organizations that. I am aware of that are specific to stream restoration, but um, I think the the women who I've met um, again in my my work in in Maryland, I think have been um, are very uh, supportive and knowledgeable, and um, you know it's uh, it's great networking with with um, with them and hearing what everybody else is working on and um, what we can learn from each other. What do you think that we could do to get more? young women involved in this, uh, in, in the sciences and in this type of work in particular? I think part of it is recruiting and encouraging and also just um, more outreach by current women scientists so that um, young, young women and girls know that this is a job opportunity. When I was growing up, I had no idea that, that this was a job and, and it may not have been when I was a kid, but the fact that it is now, it just means that we need to be getting into schools um, you know, getting into high schools and younger just so that people are aware that this is something that that they can do. This is a, a career that they can explore. Um, trying to encourage people to not be afraid to get dirty. I know that might sound a little bit cliche, but like, I love that I own muck boots and a hard hat for my job. My <laughs> two, my, like my two and a half year old son thinks it's totally normal that I own muck boots and a hard hat for my job. And his dad also has a hard hat for his job. Like, he doesn't see anything wrong with that. So I, I feel like we just need to keep having those conversations to just normalize that, you know, whatever gender you are, whatever your background is, like you can have any sort of a job that is of interest to you. And let them it's know all, how fun it's it all is. Available. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very true. Very and true. how satisfying, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and that's yeah. that, you know, what, what is the, the, the satisfaction that comes from these projects for you? So 
it's really amazing to me to have gotten involved in this field because I think 10 years ago, if I had looked at a stream that was in pretty bad shape, it may not have occurred to me how degraded it was and what the real um, ramifications were for that degradation. And I think now I look at streams and they almost stick out like a sore thumb. You know, you drive down the road and you cross over a stream on a bridge and you kind of glance and you're like, Ooh, that's, that's bad. Um, and then you go to some restoration sites and you see them go from just being in the design phase. So where they are degraded stream systems, and then you see the construction happening and then post-construction, even without vegetation growing, they, they look so much better. And then if you come back a year later, once plants have had a year to grow, once, you know, come back three years, five years later, and you just see how great they look and how natural they look, that's, that's awesome to, to be a part of that. Because then you can also imagine what's now living there that might not have. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that Tinker's Creek Stream Restoration Project in like urban suburban, um, you know, Washington, D.C. suburbs, I was there um, over the summer. So while the construction project was going on, but I was at a part that had been constructed a few months prior, there's a great, a great blue heron fishing in the stream. Hmm. Wow. Nice. In, you know, a, a pretty urban area. That's that's not something that I think you would have seen there previously. So to see great blue heron and frogs and snakes in a suburb of D.C., that's that's really cool mm-hmm. that, you know, that that habitat is now there. It's available to them. Like we have this yeah. great wildlife corridor in addition to, you know, reducing localized flooding and, um, you know, all, all the other benefits that the project brought. It seems that the more you do, the more there is to do. Does it feel that way to you? Yeah, I, I think there's always more to be done. Um, so it's, you know, good opportunity for growth in the industry (laughs) would be the positive way to, to look at it. Um, yeah. And, and I think, um, I think something that's, that's really important to note is that we're doing a single stream restoration or a single wetland restoration or a single project that has both stream and wetlands, but the wildlife is moving back and forth from wherever to wherever. So they might be just passing through. So mm-hmm. the more of these projects we can have and the more protected natural areas we have, we're, we're making that those corridors for wildlife in addition to overall improving water quality by having all of these projects. So the, the more that, that we can do to protect our resources, I think it's important to do in a broader sense, but also like, even if it's piecemeal, you know, it's, you could still kind of hop and skip from, from one project to another project if they're close enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Laura, it's been great to have this conversation with you and to hear about the projects that you're working on. Thank you so much for sharing, sharing with us today. This has been an amazing Yeah, experience. thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks. This is, this is wonderful. Really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, good to learn about what you're doing. Uh, I think the, you know, I think stream restoration is a, is an area that I think a lot of people are, are not as familiar with. It's a, it's very emerging, uh, as, as mm-hmm. a science, as a practice. And, uh, I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's exciting. Uh, so cool. glad. thanks for joining us for this. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's great. This is Aquapod, brought to you by Insitu. You can find more episodes and subscribe to the podcast on our website, insitu.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please listen, share, and help us spread the word. This episode was produced by Helen Taylor, Adam Hobson, and Lauren Ryan, with a big assist from Josiah Homeland and Versa Studio in beautiful Colorado. We look forward to bringing you more water monitoring stories from the field, and until then, take care out there.